Religion is unpredictable, but we've learned over 22,000 years, we've developed a modus vivendi of dealing with religion. We haven't developed a modus vivendi of dealing with political correctness. Why? Because we realize it's, you know, it's, I think it was Voltaire or Rousseau that said, if you didn't have God, it would be necessary to invent God. I have never come across a country like India, which has suffered more at the hands of Islamic terrorism. That is also absolutely clueless about Islamic terrorism. Do not take what the Tablighi Jamaat did as an isolated event. They are the cause. 60% of all cases today in India are linked to the Tablighi Jamaat. It is not Islamophobia to say that this is how the vast majority of Sunni polity in this country behave. It is the stereotype for how Sunni Muslim polity in this country behaves. And it is how you have to look at any future negotiations with the Sunni Muslim polity in this country. I'm going to speak for about 15 to 20 minutes. Maybe I'll drag it longer, but mostly, you know, I prefer most of the conference to go into the Q&A sessions because that's where, you know, it gets kind of interactive and you get a lot more uh, uh, information out. So what happens is you've seen uh, that there's a campaign right now against uh, Hindus in the Gulf. Anybody who uh, expressed Islamophobic sentiment, uh, most of them you'll notice did not. They just abused somebody on Twitter and they're being tagged for being Islamophobic and things like that. And this comes down to the issue of what exactly is Islamophobia and is accusing somebody of being disproportionately responsible for the spread of a virus Islamophobia just because they belong to a certain community. Now, for this, we need to look at three separate uh, issues. The first is what exactly is Islamophobia? Uh, the second is the question of uh, blaming and shaming. And the third is the issue of stereotyping. And to do all of that, you need to understand some of the political history. For that last, the third point there, you need to understand what the uh, political history of political Islam in India has been. So uh, let me start with the first point, Islamophobia. Uh, look up a definition of Islamophobia. There's actually no, um, you'll find a rudimentary definition in uh, Wikipedia, which is basically sourced from three different books, but there is no agreed definition of Islamophobia. But what is a phobia? It is an unreasonable, medically, it's an unreasonable fear of something. Now, is it unreasonable to fear the extremist tendencies of any religion? Um, I'd say the answer is no. The question is, why is it in the case of Islam, it tends to get much more stereotyped than say Christianity or Hinduism, actually now Hinduism is stereotyped uh, across the board because you look at um, 
uh, the New York Times or the Washington Post or the Wall Street Journal. Everything is Hindu nationalism. It isn't extremist Hindus did certain things. It's just Hindu nationalism. If you're a nationalist, if you're a Hindu, you're a terrorist. Uh, you know, so there's the question of those standards as well. So what we find is basically that uh, this pattern of labeling everything Islamophobic, it conjoins with a pattern of uh, politics, the way Muslim politics in the subcontinent has been played out, uh, which I'll come to at the, uh, uh, in the last part of this. But this, you know, in, in many ways, it correlates with what we see as the political correctness brigade. And political correctness, if you notice, is something that is very, very post-religion. It started off mostly in countries, uh, it started off in a place like Europe, where, which had become post-religious much, much before. America is still not post-religious. Religion is still very, very strong in America. But in Europe, I can tell you, even in the most southern parts of Italy, in Calabria, in southern Spain, which were traditionally poorer, church attendance is almost non-existent. Now, the thing is, religion, we've had a tactile relationship with it for the last 15 odd thousand, almost 20,000 years. If you look at Gokbeli Tepe, which is the Stone Age ruins in Turkey, you find that religion came before the city, temples came before cities. So we can actually document it going back to about 22, 22,000 years. Now, religion is unpredictable, but we've learned over 22,000 years, we've developed a modus vivendi of dealing with religion. We haven't developed a modus vivendi of dealing with political correctness. Why? Because we realize it's, you know, it's, I think it was Voltaire or Rousseau that said, if you didn't have God, it would be necessary to invent God. Uh, and I've modified that to saying I don't believe in God, but I believe in religion because religion provides a form of social control. And what these post-religious societies decided was that you did not need religion, but then they had to have another form of arbitrary and note, I use the word arbitrary social control with which to label enemies and go after them, much like the witch hunts of, 16th, uh, of 1600s Europe. So what happens here is that uh, you have Islamophobia now that has become a part of the shibboleth of the politically correct left. Why is this? You know, for a long, long time in between, it was the politically correct that were the biggest enemies of Islam because these were the radical leftists that were going hammer and tongs at them. Uh, it turns out that, you know, a few well-placed terror attacks can buy you acquiescence and complete cooperation. Forget cooperation, obsequiousness and crawling on the knees. All it required was a few terrorist attacks on that uh, French magazine, the Danish cartoon controversy, uh, the killing of uh, Van Gogh's uh, great-grandson, was it, I think, for uh, blasphemy and things like that. And that entire crowd, uh, you, you remember uh, uh, Christopher Hitchens, uh, how he used to go hammer and tongs at Islam. That was the end of your actual left-wing attacks on Islam. Once the terror attacks targeting intellectuals started, it shifted completely the other way. Uh, to the point now where the left has also seen, this is where intersectionality comes in. 
they now see Islam, uh, Islamophobia as the perfect weapon to target the right. So the way it was, was if this is, say, uh, Islam, this is Islam, right hand. Uh, this is Western political left. This is Western political right. This was always enemy number one. Remember, it wasn't when uh, the war was fought in Afghanistan. Uh, it was against communism. Uh, number one enemy of uh, Islam has always been a, a communism. They've seen these people as godless. So it was always the left that, the, uh, uh, that Islam fought with. But what the left realized was that this was a fantastic tool to get rid of these guys, the right. So they basically started, they formed an alliance. So now left and Islam versus the right, right? So this is basically what you're looking at. Carefully executed maneuver, which now means they will use their whitewashing abilities to justify everything. Hijab, female genital mutilation, what have you. So this is one aspect, which is the uh, Islamophobia aspect. Uh, the second that we, uh, I'm going to combine a, a, a few thoughts now is the issue of stereotyping. Now, remember, uh, I have never come across a country like India, which has suffered more at the hands of Islamic terrorism. That is also absolutely clueless about Islamic terrorism about the theological nuances, about the differences and the distinctions in Islam. Uh, for example, how, why do you think there are so many uh, terror groups that attack India? Why is there a separate Harkatul Mujahideen? Why is there a separate lashkar e Toiba? Uh, uh, so on and so forth. Uh, jaish e Muhammad, so on and so forth. Each one of these comes from a different school, a different school of jurisprudence within Islam. You also have cases where, you know, uh, of extreme uh, economic diversity, even within the Muslim community, you'll find that uh, in uh, the Shia community in India, we have three different uh, Shias. You have the Ismailis who are under the Aga Khan. You have the Daudi Bohras uh, under the Sayyidna. Uh, there's a big controversy about that. And the third are the Twelvers, the Jafris who follow the Iranian domination, who are concentrated around Lucknow and Kargil. Now, what happens out here is you'll notice the Shia are almost never involved in terror attacks. Uh, and, and the Daudi Boras, the Sayyidina actually came out and told his voters on two separate occasions in the 2019 elections and in the 2014 elections to come vote for the BJP and Narendra Modi. We also find the voting pattern of Kashmiri Shias is more or less towards the BJP. All right. There's a reason for this. They tend to be economically far, far, far ahead of the Sunnis. In fact, the Daudi Boras and the Ismailis and uh, to a slightly lesser extent, the Jafris are some of the most economically forward communities in this country. How many Shia terror attacks have you had in this country? Uh, Targeting India, there has only been one Shia terrorist in Kashmir ever known. Just one, mind you. Hmm. Uh, there was one other Shia terror attack which wasn't aimed at India. It was aimed at Israel, which was the uh, 
you know, the bombing, the firebombing of the car of the Israeli political attaché a few years back, just near my house uh, in Delhi, outside the Israeli embassy, uh, for which a uh, Shia journalist was arrested for spying and things like that. Uh, again, nobody died, but people were badly injured. Now, this is where stereotyping comes in. I find a lot of the stereotyping that happens in India happens because we're not even taught about Islam. Everything is, you know, clubbed together as if Sunni Islam is the one and only thing. We start using Takia, Takia, Takia for everything. And remember, Takia is a very Shia concept. It, it's not uh, justified in Islam, uh, in Sunni Islam in that sense. Uh, that a lot of the political leaders lie is a different matter. Remember, all politicians lie. But as a principle, it only lies within Shia Islam. So when I see a lot of people say, you know, this is Takya, you need to separate individual lying for institutionalized justification for lying. Uh, then you have lots of other communities, even within the Sunnis. Now, remember, even within the Sunnis, there are lots of economic stratas to look at. You have, uh, so this is what happened in 1857. I think all of you who have done CBSE, I think it was probably an ICSE and state board as well, would have studied the Zamindari, the Rayatwari and all those systems, right? That was the condition of India in 1857 when the British finally overthrew the Mughal Empire. So what you had was a fundamentally feudal polity whose power structures were all these Jagirs and Zamindars who were controlling everything. If you went up against them, you did it at your own risk because he would send his men and he would have you butchered or killed if you tried anything funny with his land. And mind you, land reforms uh, that we allegedly, so-called land reforms that Nehru enacted, they were not land reforms. Never fall for this trick. That land reforms nonsense that you learn in CBSE is 90% of the cause why we aren't able to understand why Sunni Muslims in this country, a large percentage of Sunni Muslims in this country, still live in a feudal mindset. All it was was tenancy reforms. Remember that. So there was the, uh, again, three-layered structure. The topmost was the zamindar. The Second layer was the deputy zamindar. He was the guy who would take uh, land on rent from zamindar. This guy would take on rent from this guy. And finally, there would be the landless laborers. These guys who had absolutely no title on the land. What Indian land reforms did was they took away what belonged to this guy and gave it to, sorry, that finger is very weird. So I'm going to use this finger instead. Uh, gave it to this guy. So you didn't actually get rid of feudalism. You just multiplied feudalism. It, was, it, it had nothing to do with empowering these people. It was a cold, calculated political move by the Indian National Congress that because this particular, the top zamindar was seen as being compromised and not really willing to uh, uh, make peace with the Congress, their power had to be broken. So this guy had to go. And these guys, many of whom, because these guys were opposed to these guys, they were willing to make a deal with the Congress. These guys were imposed. This guy, as always, was screwed over. 
So let's talk about this guy now. What happens with him is he's just as feudal. If this guy went up against the middle zamindar, he would still have his house torched. He would still have his wife raped. He would still have something or the other happen to him. And that wasn't a very good thing. So uh, what you did was, in a sense, you democratized feudalism that instead of a handful, say 20, 30,000, you made it 200, 400,000. I'm just giving a rough number. I don't have the numbers with me because, you know, we're all in quarantine stuck at home. Uh, that it democratized this feudal structure. And this feudal structure could then be used by the Congress for playing divide and rule. And that is what the Muslims then used as their political power. Now, remember, the, uh, let's go back to 1857. What developed was you see a 20-year period of disenfranchisement. It was seen as a Muslim rebellion, which wasn't entirely true. There were large Hindu sections to it as well. But it was seen as a Muslim rebellion. These guys were disenfranchised. And within 20 years, you see the setting up of Aligarh University and things like that. I mean, the initial founding of it uh, by Sir Sayyid Ahmed, the germination of the thought, this all follows sequentially, uh, of setting it up to kind of unify and give them a voice. So what happens in all of this is that you have a institutionalized way now of negotiating with the government. It was initially by the Zamindars. After 1950, it became the deputy Zamindars. And what was this? It was basically the feudal lord looking for handouts from the government, looking at negotiating opportunities from the government. So how do you start off? You initially start off by maximalist demands. You, uh, you know, if your land, some part of your land is being taken uh, off for uh, building a road or something like that, you say, no, 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 I'm not going to give it to you. Then you start becoming obstructionist. You start uh, putting guys out. So far, it is passive resistance, fine. But you also start sabotaging. And finally, when the, uh, 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 the steamrollers come, uh, you, then it blows up into full-on violence. Now, you notice throughout, ever since AMU in that sense has been set up, it has constantly been a... Uh, this sequence, you can actually game it. Stage one, stage two, stage three. All right. You've seen this with the CAA protest. And I'm talking about this because CAA is so valid to our recent history. You'll remember all of this. Initially, it was just saying, you know, we oppose it, la di da di da Second phase is it actually graduated to violence almost instantaneously. Remember both those hotspots, uh, uh, Jamia Milia Islamia and... Um, that uh, Trans-Yamuna triangle, which blew up. Both had riots, which the uh, Delhi police crushed very, very quickly. And they were criticized for very, very heavily. And then the same terrorists who started up these riots, they then organized people to come sit on passive protest. It was precisely because it was crushed brutally that they decided to switch that and make it passive protest. All right. It wasn't passive. Remember that. We've all seen the videos of journalists being beaten up if you didn't report things a certain way. You still talk to journalists who went in there. They will tell you there were metal detectors. They were coordinating with walkie-talkies, whatnot, so on and so forth. And 
then what happens is because their protest is losing steam you've won the election at least you've defeated the bjp what's happening from there on they don't see anything going they feel unhone uh, to use this um, what's the hindi term i've forgotten somebody told me you know that they um, basically held their nose and voted for arvind kejriwal because they were absolutely alarmed by stuff he had said that i will get rid of these protesters in one day uh, mandir wahi banega so on so forth so they felt that they had no options other than arvind kejriwal because by this time the congress had already ceded ground they said you know we are not going to allow the vote to get split let arvind kejriwal win so it was given over to arvind kejriwal and they uh, they've now defeated the bjp what do they do now they realized this is where the dead end politically was that even if kejriwal wins he has absolutely no power to prevent the nrcca process from happening in delhi and so you have to upgrade it to the next level which, which is full on over the top violence think about it rationally you know for uh, for any police investigation there has to be motive and the motive here is only one community had an interest in escalating this the hindu community had zero interest in escalating this and who exactly are this entire group of people in jafarabad and so on so forth it is mostly a low income group sunni area now remember that correlation between income and sunni sunnis are at the absolute rock bottom of the indian social ladder so this now brings us this is i've given you the background and history this now brings us to what we're going to which is the core subject which is the tablighi jamaat now remember the tablighi jamaat you need to make a difference between uh puritanical and traditionalists puritanical is still modern in a sense that they are willing to interpret they don't say don't watch tv uh they say watch tv but don't watch uh you know women in bikinis on tv watch uh, uh, religious programs on tv it's a wonderful thing and in a sense that is not unlike remember for a long time islam was the one that was uh, uh, propagating knowledge in the middle east and christianity was clamping down on knowledge this is a fundamental theological problem for christianity science detracts from the mysteries of god one of the important things of the christian service is the uh, of the catholic service is it's called the eucharistic mystery it's meant to be a mystery anything that takes away from it is an abomination for islam on the other hand for uh, well the caliphate strain of islam for the abbasid caliphate strain of islam and uh, umayyads too uh science was how followers get to know allah so it was that you know if science proved that there was not something supernatural in one of allah's miracles everybody would like wah 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 see allah knew this even before we did this is proof that allah is true god so remember these are two differing theological uh, approaches so what happens out here is you have the tablighis who are not puritanical like that they are traditionalist traditionalist is basically a very um, civilized way of saying somebody is an idiot because apparently the prophet slept on his right shoulder on his side everybody should sleep on the right shoulder apparently because the prophet always entered the mosque with his right foot first therefore you should enter with your right foot first 
so on before because the prophet considered the wearing of pajamas below your ankles any clothes uh, rubbing the floor to be immodest therefore everybody should wear their pajamas uh, above their ankles and so on and so forth so you'll actually notice the wahhabis have a great deal of contempt for the tablighis uh primarily of course there's also a racist reason for it because ever since the mongols converted to sunni islam uh they were seen as kind of inferior muslims they were seen as not true muslims remember out of the 1400 years of muslim history only 200 years have been arab history the remaining 1200 years have been turko mongol history created by muslims remember all the turks the turks who ruled egypt the turks who ruled north africa the turks who ruled uh, the ottoman empire all came from somewhere around mongolia xinjiang uh, kazakhstan uzbekistan at some point of time and they all migrated west so what happens out here is that you have this uh, entire uh, tablighi jamaat which is obscurantist by any any stretch of the imagination nobody likes them then combine two different things one is that they say they are not political on the other hand they have all these political games which is obstructionism they were told on what four separate occasion on the 13th the delhi government notification came out they said no we're not going to follow you on 16th the stronger notification came out they say no we're not going to follow you then there was the 21st and then the 23rd in all those cases they said no 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 and finally you caved and you sent the national security advisor i mean forget the danger of sending the man who controls your nuclear buttons into a biologically active zone but uh, it's never a good idea now the person who best described this entire phenomenon and this negotiating tactic has been brilliant uh, now what i'm trying to do here is i'm not going to uh, repeat what i put on my twitter timeline i'm trying to give you new information and new background and things uh we can of course talk about these things in q and a is that uh you have this entire sequence you know the sequence or oh, well i mean clearly the government does not know the sequence of stage 1 uh maximalism stage 2 obstructionism stage 3 violence you still do nothing about it what does that tell you about the knowledge we have of islam and of sunni muslim negotiating practices out here now there's a reason i use the word sunni muslim it's also linked to an economic strata why is it just this now understand the biggest affectees of the fact that the government of india doesn't understand this are the muslims on one hand you have allowed the sunni political agenda to completely terrorize the shia the ismailis the daudi boras the nurbakhshias every other denominational sect you've allowed these feudal leaders to basically terrorize every modern muslim you know i know a lot of muslims who will eat pork who are borderline atheists and i say borderline atheists why because they are actually atheists they just dare not come out and say anything in public because they know what's going to happen to them so you haven't even protected if there were any voices for reform within islam you've basically thrown them to the wolves because all you've done is you've incentivized this feudal muslim negotiating tactic the person who summed this up best was sitaram goel when he was talking about nehru but clearly nothing's changed and what did he say it's like a man who goes in for uh, who's convicted of something and he goes in for punishment right 
he's told he can either eat 100 chilies or he can get 100 lashes. Uh, after 30, uh, eating 30 chilies, he says, oh my God, I can't take these chilies anymore. I'd rather go in for 30 lashes. So then he gets 30 lashes. Uh, he's meant to get a full 100 lashes. But after 30 lashes, he says, oh my God, these lashes are too bad. I can't do this anymore. I'm going to go back to chilies. So then he eats another 30 chilies and then he's like, oh my God, I can't do this. And therefore you get into uh, uh, lashes again. By the end of it, he's gotten a full, he, he had to eat a full hundred chilies and he's had to have a full hundred lashes. This unfortunately is the reality of it. We are expected to endure violence and remember violence. Who can carry out violence? Remember this. If you've got a job, and this is why we don't see Shia violence. Why is it lower income group, Jugi Jopri Wala, Sunni violence? There's a reason for it. If you want to go out in the streets and riot, tell me what guy with a white collar employment will ever dream of going out in the streets and rioting. They're not. You've fundamentally got joblessness that leads to rioting. Anywhere you go, it is the economically depressed sections, which are also the high crime sections. In India, they get organized into riot mobs. Now, understand when we talked about that middle zamindar, who's the one negotiating with the government, for him, he loses nothing. He's a political leader, so it doesn't matter who you disenfranchise at the lower level, if in fact disenfranchisement is happening. His son will always get into university because he'll call up his local leader and say, Ah, bhai sahab, mere bachche ko ye seat dilado, mere beti ko ye seat dilado. Right. It's always the lower level Muslims, the ones on the street who are the fodder for these riots that get conned by this leadership. And what happens is that you consistently have this uh, pattern where even now with the BJP, they are incentivizing and rewarding this leadership. And you have these basic uh, Chichora Sunnis on the street who are the fodder. Now, understand both these parties, the ruling government, be it BJP or Congress, and this middle-level zamindar, who for all effects and purposes we're now going to call the zamindar, the feudal leader, has an interest in keeping these people unemployed. They have an interest in using them as and when to suit their political agenda. The BJP for Hindu consolidation, the uh, feudal leader for negotiating demands, and this then becomes your perfect storm. Now, notice the government response to this. For a man like Modi, who had an experience of this in Godhra, what has he done to systemically address this issue? Exactly zero. Same incompetence, same calculus. Fine, in, Godhra, in Gujarat, you didn't have uh, troops. Uh, 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 CRPF said they would take time to come. They took three, four days to come, so on and so forth. In Delhi, you had all the troops. You had everybody in high security. You had extra troops flown in for Trump's visits. The Delhi police chief is on record saying that there was no shortage of troops. What did you do? You didn't break up the Shaheen Bagh riots, which then directly led to all of this. You didn't break it up for purely political electoral reasons. And then when you lose, it's already blown up to be a big issue. Then you can't do anything. And then you basically allowed Hindus to get butchered. That's exactly what happened. The BJP allowed Hindus to get butchered and did absolutely nothing. So I'm going to end out here saying that if you come to the Tablighi Jamaat, remember, do not take what the Tablighi Jamaat did 
as an isolated event. We are the cause. 60% of all cases today in India are linked to the Tablighi Jamaat. It is not Islamophobia to say that this is how the vast majority of Sunni polity in this country behave because what the Tablighi Jamaat did and Remember, this is uh, deduction and induction. You know, you have two statistical methods. Uh, deduction is where you have a set of uh, uh, examples and you deduce something. Induction is where it's a bottoms up approach. So do look up deduction, induction. It will be explained. I'm not going to get into the explanation here. Here you have a classic typeset case of how the Tablighi Jamaat behaved. It is the stereotype for how Sunni Muslim polity in this country behaves and it is how you have to look at any future negotiations with the Sunni Muslim polity in this country. This is how it will always be carried out. Remember, even though Jinnah was a Shia, Shias didn't come out in the street and protest. They were all supporting from the side with money and things like that, but they never came out in the streets and protest. All the violence during partition was carried out on Jinnah's orders by local Sunni thugs and gangs mobilized and organized by these zamindars, right? So remember, there are divisions in Islam. Don't stereotype. At the same time, you can st stereotyping this particular kind of negotiating tactic to the Sunni polity in this country is perfectly legitimate. So I'm going to end out there. We'll leave everything for Q&A. Uh, thank you, Abhijit, for that great discussion. My quick question is, you spoke about the Sunni-Shia divide, and we know that they, they don't like each other and so on. Uh, so what's the phenomenon of uh, these Shia journalists supporting, emphatically supporting the Shaheen Bakh cause and, and all of that? Uh, you know, the, the one journalist I'm talking about, Sabah Naki, uh, who is Shia, but uh, she continues to support all the violence, all the Sunni-related violence. So what is that phenomenon? I'm curious to find out if you have the answer. Sabah Nakhvi in that sense is one of those people who knows she will never be a Shia community leader. Uh, she therefore <clears throat> does what uh, the Bhuttos did. You know, the Bhuttos are Shia. Uh, Yahya Khan was a Shia. Jinnah was a Shia. But the Bhuttos, unlike Yahya and, uh, I mean, um, Jinnah, of course, used to eat pork and stuff like that. He wasn't really a Muslim at all to begin with. But um, Yahya was quite open about being a Shia. But what do the Bhuttos do? They've become crypto uh, Sunni. They only portray their Sunni side. They've given up on their Shiism. And what they do is they basically support every single uh, Sunni cause, really. They have zero sympathy for the Shias. Uh, and this is what Sabah Nakhvi does. But let me point out that the uh, Supreme Leader, uh, Supreme Ayatollah of Iran, Ayatollah Khamenei, also came out and made lots of nasty remarks about the Delhi riots and Shaheen Bagh and things like that. Now, remember, there is a, uh, the biggest politically active concentration of Shias is in Kashmir. Uh, they are petrified of what is going to happen to them in Kashmir because the pundits have been run out. And now Shias are treated as Mukhbirs. Mukhbirs are informers, you know, spies, fifth columns in that sense. They are petrified of what's going to happen to them. So there are two different Shia responses. One is people like Sabah Nakhvi, who will, she's not a man, 
therefore she is not going to uh, be taken seriously within the shia leadership so she is playing a different game that's an individual game the organizational game is what is dictated by uh, ayatollah khamenei from iran which is what the jafris follow uh, which is that uh, shaheen bag and all of this is a liberation movement they will say all of this but they will not support it because you know the louder you are the less you actually have to um, come out there and do anything about it so that's fine i mean that we can deal with did i have a question from gorov s who cannot ask this himself uh, what's the modus operandi in the garb of islamophobia globally and how are these folks funded for a well oiled and well rounded propaganda campaign see the, the um there is no funding campaign for this like i explained its intersectionality the left sees islamophobia as a fantastic way of uh screwing over the right so it's a alliance of convenience right remember in the afghan war what was the actual payment nothing it was uh basically uh global the christian right joining hands with uh the islamic extremism to defeat communism now it's a realignment it's the global left that have created a alliance of convenience with uh sunni islam to screw over the global right it's that simple and islamophobia is the best way of think of islamophobia in that sense as a non-verbal uh, as a verbal non-violent afghanistan they'll keep grounding you down grounding you down grounding you down paint you as a bigot paint you as a racist paint you as whatever 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 in the hope that something will stick now how do these charges stick it's when you lack nuance that they actually end up sticking and this is the problem in india that we very frequently lose nuance that we can't protect ourselves intellectually when we're challenged and then we start doubling down the funding for this is um, it's not that there's no funding but there's no funding for this specifically what happens is it's these global conferences you get your business class travel your five star stay you get project funding to do things on nonsense like diversity one of the latest shell corporation type fundings of this is of a nonsense called cve have you heard of it it's called countering violent extremism which basically equates all forms of violence rural violence um with islamic terrorism now you know at least when the ltt was around i could have said that there was an equivalence to be made because the ltt was a christo hindu primarily christian but at one point it was primarily hindu uh, movement against a buddhist state and they were extraordinarily violent killed prime ministers and presidents internationally uh, uh, sri lankan president sri lankan foreign minister indian former prime minister so on and so forth but when you start comparing a social phenomenon which is cow lynching again very very selective bias statistical bias because the overwhelming majority of cow smugglers are muslims about 89 to 95% of them are muslims therefore when they caught it starts getting portrayed as communal violence 
which then gets equated with the 9-11 terror attacks or the 27-11 terror attacks. I mean, excuse me, Matt. This is the kind of whitewashing they do. And see, the problem is these people control academia, so they're able to justify all this kind of nonsense through verbiage. And because the right wing actually have jobs, they're not jobless old that sit around and, uh, uh, you know, come up with this and are paid for this, uh, uh, paid to come up with bullshit and contribute biogas and the uh, uh, destruction of the ozone layer, like this intellectual destruction of the ozone layer. Uh, we don't actually come up with effective academic or intellectual tools to counter this. Like I said, nuance is your best friend. A lack of nuance on our part is their best friend. From the questions coming to me, what is the way forward after having re rewarded bad behavior? Twice the NSA had to personally step in which proves the national security implications and ramifications. Now the terrorists have grown above law in some sense. Abhijit? Look, it's the unbending rule of law. In India, we just don't understand that there is a thing called rule of law. There is complete judicial unpredictability. There is complete political unpredictability. Well, you can predict the politician is always going to bend over and be supine. There is complete police unpredictability. And, you know, you have to empathize with the cop on the ground because he doesn't know that if he actually does what the law tells him to do, he will be scapegoated by his superior officer acting on the instruction of a political master. Right. So how do you deal with this? Unfortunately, you know, after uh, the, the chain is the same as what happened with Nazi Germany. Appeasement, appeasement, appeasement. When you appease, it finally comes to the point of no return. And then you either have, uh, after Munich, only one thing happens, World War II. All right. Uh, right now, the cost of beating down appeasement is phenomenal. Uh, understand there is no easy solutions to this. Everybody says, uh, all my friends in Pakistan, you know, they realize what they've done. They, uh, they know that by incentivizing terrorists and creating all these terrorist organizations, they've essentially destroyed their country. But now they don't know how to unpedal it because if they go after those terrorist organizations, also they're destroying their country. In India, our dilemma is no different. We have created a monster, a Frankenstein. And now there is no easy solutions except going after it. But I don't think the current leadership either has the vision. They don't understand the macro of this. And I don't think they're going to go after it. We're going to see more of the same. Yeah. Uh, Abhijit, thank you for the informative discussion. So... Uh... I've got two questions for you. Shall I shoot them straight or shall I go one by one? Oh, go one by one, please. Okay. Uh, so the first question is based on the Shia sect uh, you just mentioned. So recently, the Shia Walk-Off Board Chief Wasim Rizvi uh, gave a statement that whatever the Tablighi Jamaat have done is a fidai or some sort of a coronavirus jihad. So do you think it is the right way to go in the best interest of the country to form an alliance under the leadership of Wasim Rizvi with the Shia community, uh, uh, like like how the Jai Bhim Jai Meem lobby has done to uh, take the Dalits as their ally and drive the Hindus out. Uh, do you think it would be the right uh, thing to do? Absolutely. You know, the power is we keep disempowering the Shia. We keep disempowering the modern Sunni who wants to break free. Because what happens is the moment a Sunni tries uh, to break out of this entire feudal thing, 
you know there are always people within our midst who says suar akhir suar hi to rahega this really shit like that get that gets told to them which really hurts you know and then they've got in many ways think of it this way i don't particularly care for modi but i keep voting for modi because of what rahul gandhi says all it requires me to turn pro modi again after hating him is rahul gandhi for, for rahul gandhi to open his mouth for one minute you have to understand the nuance you have to create this counter thing you have to break the sunni feudal monopoly on power we have to empower other muslims we have to allow them remember the shia board got rid of triple talaq way before any other uh, muslim person board did they have always and it is much to do with their economic functions that they tend to be much more progressive than the sunnis they're not optimal they're, they're not saying women should go around wearing micro mini skirts and all of that you don't need that just so long as some things are done they are not a disturbed population and the shias in this country have seldom the only disturbance that they do is that they are disturbed by the sunnis that every time they take out the ashura procession it gets um uh stone pelted by the sunnis and things like that you know they bear as much of the burden you look anywhere across the world it is sh- the maximum number of people being killed are shias by sunnis be it in yemen be it in iraq be it in syria uh be it in uh, lebanon that is what happens so you know you have to create these micro alliances and things like that i don't think we understand how to do that Uh, so that's answer number 1 uh, question number 2 yeah thank you vijit so the second question is uh, which i feel is one of the main fundings which the sunni thugs like you mentioned receive is through the halal certification like you see restaurant chains everywhere everywhere around us they display this halal certificate and if you do a background check all the butchers and all the chefs are predominantly muslims and they don't hire a non muslim butcher because it is not clean according to islamic standards and i don't know how much authentic it is but i read an article on swaraj mag that the organization which certifies this jamaat e ulama hind it also receives the fund and it also uh, you know provides attorneys and lawyers to muslims who are accused of terror activities so uh, one it is like uh, religiously discriminating people and two it is indirectly funding terrorism so do you think like it should be uh, uh, expressed out in the broad to boycott halal look i think boycotting halal is a very very important thing i think uh, you don't even need to boycott it you need to say i will only eat jhatka meat end of story we want jhatka certification and we are not going to eat at restaurants that don't have jhatka certification the issue is remember halal now has certain economies of scale all right uh, i can honestly tell you i've been to a lot of restaurants that can't certify halal they just refuse to certify halal right on the other hand there's such large 20% of your population well 16 to 18% of your population demands halal uh, you have to create the economic nucleus for it you can't use state legislation to do things like this you have to create the economic uh uh you know otherwise we end up becoming a socialist state you have to create the economic logic for jhatka to be incentivized and the political thing for this is that because butchers hindu butchers are all dalits halal is fundamentally a violation of the scst act make no mistake about it halal is a clear 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 economic boycott of hindu scst people never ever forget that 
you need to create you can't do this under government action though you can take legal action i guess but not legislative action it needs to be two things one is public uh, 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 delegitimization of halal uh, certification and two is the creation of economic uh, uh, an economic constituency to take forward jatka certification okay, i have a follow up comment on on the shia sunni uh, divide if you like i just happened to speak to a, a molana who's actually part of uh, you know the bjp's or the rss muslim morcha and wing and we're trying to get him to invite here i had a one hour conversation with him just 2 3 days back and he seems to be demonizing the shias that these are the guys who are from outside they came from outside they are not indians and we are the guys who are you know were born here and this is our mother so he actually was taking a very nationalistic stand in some ways i do want to interview him and uh, bring up some very uncomfortable points uh, well i but- hope i've given you enough uncomfortable points because it remind him that like i told you there've only been two shia terror attacks so far and one of them wasn't even aimed at an indian uh, hi abhijit thanks for the great uh, information that you provided on this subject uh, my question is that uh, this this uh, understanding about the under underlying phenomena that is happening is because of your individual reading of the subject and underst- understanding the overall picture but does our country have an institutional knowledge system which can uh, you know provide input to governments about this type of things um, irrespective of whichever government comes bjp or congress but if there is an institutional support then it will be prolonged study on such uh, such things happening in the country and they will keep on providing support to government to what how to act on this so if is there any uh, such institution or not and if there is no such institution uh what is the interest of political class of not creating such an institution look there is absolutely no institutional memory uh and that is why you see that the same mistakes keep getting repeated over and over again and i'll tell you why an institutional knowledge will never be created uh it's not just the creation of knowledge it's also the transmission of that institutional knowledge and accretion of new examples to keep refining the model it won't happen for several reasons one is you have a non expert bureaucracy the bureaucracy believes that passing one upsc exam on whatever subject of their choice makes them an expert at everything uh so they never actually read up properly they never actually uh get a deep specialization in all of this uh and you end up getting screwed but the second issue is remember that when you're not an expert on all of this you tend to concoct i have seen the way government papers in this country are made uh you know they have absolutely no academic rigor to them they will make sweeping generalizations which are completely unbacked up by facts had had any one of my students back when i was teaching written a paper like that it would have been a fail then and there they are basically allowed to make a, a, a bureaucratic paper in this country is no different from a religious sermon because it's all faith based okay and what happens out here is there is because of this because they are not subject matter experts they also fear subject matter experts 
when they get subject matter experts, it's people who only validate what they have to say and say, uh, till yesterday, they would have said, you know, uh, this position is wrong. But the moment joint secretary or additional secretary or secretary calls them, they'll say like, sir, aap to gazab ho, sir. Aap, aap ne to mere di. Then they will turn 180 degrees. Okay. Uh, this is what you have to do for government access, which is you have to become a supine babu uh, justifier. This is the kind of people that get incentivized by the system. Plus, the system itself has no expertise in it. Right. So it's, it's a constant. It is both a disincentivization of knowledge. It is a lack of individual knowledge creation. And then because of the transfer mechanisms, there is also no transmission of that knowledge anymore. Uh, hello, Abhijit ji. So uh, my question is, uh, how can we like counter this uh, whole uh, argument of Islamophobia uh, through social media or other channels, whatever channels it is uh, at a base level, like a grassroots, because for me, it is uh, very important that we do it through platforms like social media or, you know, internet. But uh, yeah, that's, so that's my question. Uh, well, it depends on what uh, uh, this is going to require a very uh, nuanced answer because see it, uh, it depends on what level of grassroots you're operating. At the absolute base grassroots, you do not require nuance. You need two levels. One is the grassroots that talks to the common man, which does not require nuance. The second is the intellectual level, which does require nuance. Uh, for the grassroots, what I would suggest is it is when this grassroots talk becomes public that is used to undermine the intellectual core. All right, they'll say, ha, dekho, ye banda to ye nuance ke bol hai. they will completely ignore that. They will only go in for the, uh, what the grassroots workers are saying. In many ways, this is like what Ramchandra Guha does. He nominated, uh, he said the uh, right wing in India has only one intellectual. And it was a guy that I had never heard of in my entire life. Why? Because he was the least of all intellectuals. So you create a straw man and then you take it down. This is what they do. So what you need to do is your grassroots discourse cannot be in public. It has to be in private forums, WhatsApp groups and things like that. The social media discourse has to be an intellectual discourse. It has to have a great deal of nuance because uh, social media requires that nuance. But let me tell you what happens. The BJP unfortunately never invests. The Hindu right never invests in that kind of nuance. Uh, we are a low human capital country. We do not believe in individual value addition. And so all we spend our money doing is events and, uh, you know, screaming, shouting over the top nonsense. Uh, we still have not seen the kind of creation of intellectual capital the way the Congress did. The first things the Congress did after independence, in fact, uh, incapable of doing, unfortunately. So uh, that is the answer to you. I just wanted to make a quick point, Abhijit, to, to your point on the Shia Muslim uh, Sunni divide, so to speak, and forming micro alliances. Uh, you know, I just wanted to sort of remind the group that the Shias were at the forefront of the two nation theory. Um, and this, this whole artificial construct of the Ganga Jamni Tehzeeb has, is the brainchild of Shia Muslims that were left behind in India. Uh, not because of their love for the country, but because uh, they were here to mine their properties. Uh, the first prime minister of Pakistan, Liaquat, was, was a Shia. Sayyid, uh, 
I'm forgetting his name, the great uh, educationist, like he's called, was was a Shia Muslim, and so therefore uh, the uh, what's the word, the conspiracy from the Shia Muslims is is very sinister because there is probably more education that this group has. Uh, however, in terms of uh, Hindu phobia. This is this group is no different from from the Tablighi Jamaat. Is what I wanted to say. So here's the point. I completely agree with you. Uh, she, uh, it was Jinnah that started this whole thing, and it was the Ahmadiyas that supported him. The same Ahmadiyas that come crying boo hoo hoo now. Look what's happened to us. But remember, we are not going by punishment for past wrongs. We are going by what is the political reality. You can't, you know what happened to France with the policy of revanchism. Revanchism is never good politics. It is never good policy. You deal with what is happening now and here. And the fact today remains that every single Shia across the world very clearly understands that enemy number one isn't the Hindu. It isn't the Christian. It isn't the capitalist. It isn't Trump. It is Sunni Islam. Okay. Uh, and you deal with policy as is. You know, this overthinking things through beyond 30 years, long term in policy terms is 30 years. When we come to that particular bridge, we'll deal with it. Right now, all we're concerned about is that they are pro-India. They are a tool for us to use to undermine this narrative of Islamophobia. Go for it and use it. Uh, and remember, policy is based on what is, not what was. Uh, what was would mean that Germany would still be ostracized, right? You make these new alliances. Will they break after 20, 30 years? Yes. But why are you worried about that right now? Okay, when that bridge comes, we'll deal with it. Right now, you're painting everybody with the same brush stroke and that helps nobody. That That has certainly never been good policy. Thank you. Sorry. So Abhijit, you are making this point about the lack of intellectual uh, depth among the uh, right-wing intellectuals. I, I mean, I, I have something that I want to uh, add to this. So a lot of survey data collects detailed information on caste. So we have a good sense of how different caste groups operate. But I've never seen any right-wing intellectual to advocate collecting information about Muslim sects in large scale surveys because that would give an idea about how, what are the different uh, social uh, social and economic indicators among different um, uh, different Muslim groups. And I, I just want to, I, I want to flag this and I wanted your thoughts on it. Yeah, look, so this is what I'm saying. The goal lies in primary research. Primary research requires money, it requires investment. You have three right-wing think tanks in India, Shama Prasad Mukherjee Foundation, uh, uh, the uh, uh, India Foundation and the uh, uh, Vivekananda Foundation, right? Shama Prasad Mukherjee Foundation is completely unfunded. They run on a, a pittance, literally a pittance. As opposed to the Rajiv Gandhi Foundation, the first thing that Narasimha Rao did was he gave it a 100 crore corpus, which has since become close to uh, five 600 crore corpus, where they do fantastic research for their MPs. It's a different matter that the... Uh, Clown Prince is an idiot who doesn't like data, right? So Shama Prasad Mukherjee can't really do much in this case. India Foundation focuses entirely on events. Uh, and Vivekananda Foundation is mostly old people reminiscing about old things and old times. Uh, the reason for this is that the current government does not see the existence of expertise outside of the uh, uh, bureaucracy, outside of the IAS. 
it's uh, uh, Prime Minister Modi's own inferiority complex, I guess. You know, when you come from a certain class, you always say, ah, mera beta IAS banega, this idealization of the IAS. I am the kid of two IAS, IAS types. So, you know, for me, they're like, uh, but not everybody's like me. Uh, for the government, it's either IAS or nobody. If you're not IAS, you're not worth listening to. If you're not IAS uh, and you're a so-called expert, then you are to be viewed with a great deal of suspicion. Uh, not to mention quackery. The, the, the general BJP belief is that if you're an expert, but not in the IAS, you're basically a quack of some sort. You're required for PR purposes, but you're not required for anything beyond that. So uh, as long as that's the case, you know, the kind of data you're talking about, primary research, primary data collection, it will never be used except for, elect for electoral reasons. They're very happy to do this, except when it comes to winning, other than winning elections, they don't want inputs on anything else. Uh, thanks a lot for uh, uh, making me share this platform. Right, coming to my topic, Jetka. Uh, first, it is halal is not restricted. That's uh, to meat itself. Meat is only 5 to 6% of the total halal uh, economics, halalonomics. And this is the right time to shift over from halalonomics to humanomics. Uh, my question here uh, from Abhijit uh, and more from, it's, uh, more from you, uh, what I want. We, uh, how to go ahead uh, with the Sangam talks? How can we go ahead for this? Uh, we have got the narratives. We have got the... No, the answer, uh, Raviji, but I guess it is just about constantly bringing this topic up in such forums all the time. Um, I think I just like exactly like Abhijit brought up, that's the only answer I would have. Um, and, you know, encouraging people to listen to your talk and others. Thank you. Uh, but can I just add one quick thing yeah, to what Raviji said? This is something I've noticed consistently with the BJP. They never amplify voices like yours. Okay. They always, they are looking for validation from the left. Uh, they will never amplify your voice. They will never platform you. Uh, and for them, you're virtually um, somebody who is friendly, but never to be actually listened to or acted upon. Okay, and this is going to be the downfall of the BJP, but we let it be because, you know, campaigns like this, they can't do much without government assistance of some sort. There has to be the creation of the mood uh, has to come from the government ultimately. Hello, uh, hello, Abhijit. Hi, how are you? Hi, hi. Uh, sir, uh, I have a question that, uh, do you find any merit in this term Islamophobia, even 1%? Because in Britain and Canada, many people from Sikh community were targeted by right-wingers. And uh, mainstream media picked up that narrative to justify this proposition of Islamophobia. And sir, just one uh, follow-up question, that uh, what is the academic genesis of this proposition Islamophobia? Is there any individual who concretizes this, this theory or is there any institution which you can specifically point out? That's so there is Islamophobia, which is bigotry. Uh, the issue is 99% of what passes off as Islamophobia is not Islamophobia. Uh, number one. And number two, as I said earlier, there is actually no concretization of this. We have loose definitions. The point is those definitions are never used by anyone who accuses somebody else of Islamophobia. Uh, my 
uh, simple suggestion is when anybody accuses anybody of Islamophobia, challenge them as to what definition of Islamophobia they're using. And you'll see they will never actually give you a definition. Because even those academic definitions, there are about three definitions that I've read, uh, uh, are not accepted, mostly because the left has no interest in putting down a definition. Otherwise, it won't let them be arbitrary in who they choose to use it against. Hi, Abhijit. Uh, I always, I always like uh, your talk on uh, various subjects. Uh, what I wanted to ask you, when Sitaram Goel and your position is always appreciable, but after 90 years, we got this government and uh, we are trying to change the narrative. And you know, it is very difficult for Hindus to get united. So what is the solution for this? I'm sorry, can you repeat the question? What um, I didn't get the gist. It's just. very difficult for Hindus to Basically, get united with this. So what is the solution to this? Well, look, right now the solution is Rahul Gandhi, right? Every time I get disappointed <laughs> with, uh, 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 with the government, uh, you know, this time I literally did not want to vote for the BJP. And every time my hand moved away in Tamar, Mailapur is where I vote in Madras. Uh, it was the ADMK that I had to vote for. And every time my finger would move away from the ADMK, I'd see Rahul Gandhi's face and it, the finger would automatically come back to uh, 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 this thing. Look, Hindus are the most capitalistic of all the races in the world because we are fundamentally individualistic. But we temper our individualism. We want the individual to grow, but we never want to become a collective, brainless zombie collective the way mobs come out on the streets. Right. Now, the thing here is, uh, this goes back to the concept of identity. And Samuel Huntingdon, you know, made these two uh, brilliant uh, categories, substance and salience. Substance is what connects you and me. Salience is what separates you from me. So why am I brothers with, say, Rahul and not brothers with, say, uh, Afzal? Okay, uh, that is at the core of identity. You look historically, Hindus have always had substance. We've always known the South uh, uh, was always has always considered the Ganga and the North as part of India culturally. And the North has always accepted the Southern Jyotirlingas but they never accepted anything past the Indus, but it was never salience because no matter who came from beyond the Indus into India was still accepted as an Indian, right? Why was it that the four sultans uh, ganged up against the Vijayanagar empire at the battle of Talikota, but when Ghori and Ghazni are invading India, you know, uh, who was the earlier one? Was it Ghori or Ghazni? I keep getting confused. The guy who, uh, confused, the guy who smashed the Somnath temple. Every time they come, you know, the Shola expedition, the naval expedition to conquer the Sri Vijaya empire in Malaysia happened at round about the same time, within two, three years of what it, uh, of uh, Ghazni's sacking of uh, Somnath. Now, why didn't uh, Rajendra Chora get upset by this? Why was this? Why was there not this anger that this foreigner has come and destroyed a Jyotirlinga? Because we've never had salience. 
and you know that is in our religion you want to look at a similar example it lies in the mediterranean in rome okay every time uh, uh, rome conquered uh, an empire or even when alexander conquered egypt they always identified their gods with each other right zeus became ra who became jupiter uh, isis became aphrodite who became venus and so on so forth but that is not the way monotheism looks at things they are not syncretic they don't absorb it's always destroy 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 you know there is only our god and there is nothing but our god so you have to be um, having this kind of syncreticism which is natural to polytheism remember that is why we were able to absorb we have moved so far away from our vedic gods we absorbed all these local deities to the point that it's completely changed the nature of hinduism before there were no temples we used to go out and and perform fire sacrifices it it was a clearly segregated almost like the way the druzs run their religion in that sense right we don't have that salience and i think hindutva's greatest contribution is that he brings in that salience and that is why it is so modern because it takes hinduism it accepts as a great deal of merit in not uh, in just having substance and not salience but it posits that you must have salience because in this day and age it is an absolute political and existential uh, survival tool hey abhijit uh, uh abhijit uh, you mentioned that uh, you know uh, the wahhabis hate these hate the tablighis and uh, all that so uh, there are enough and more wahhabi uh, sponsored mosques now in india and when the call goes out uh, uh, you know every time there is something that is the hindus are out to you know much uh, other muslims or whatever the calls that go out from all these mosques whether they be uh, wahhabi or salafi or tablighi or whatever is always the same you know it's they let go of whatever uh intellectual differences they might have and you know when it comes to the ummah everything is forgotten the, uh, you know the turks are brothers arabs are brothers everyone is the same so how do you fight that i mean we might sit and you know wonder whether who is intellectually different from who and what not but then at the end of the day islam uh, you know the problem is that the fight is with islam whether it be whichever sect because whenever you you target one all the others uh, come together to fight as one you know they see again again see you're making this mistake uh it isn't because we haven't played the game of separating the wahhabis from the tablighis don't blame the wahhabis for that okay uh i've spoken to wahhabis in banaras and in uh, you know there's this uh, jamaat e islami uh, building uh, the different jamaat e islamis this one is uh, uh, a markaz they have in banaras you know this guy was wahhabi saudi they proudly advertise outside we are saudi funded and all of that um he is very clear that uh, i spoke to a lot of their preachers and you know they're like Uh, they were very aware of what was happening in yemen in iraq in syria even the fine nuances that most indians aren't aware of i was amazed at how much they knew and you know they they justify jihad in those countries when i asked them about india they're like yeah no it isn't going to work in india we have a constitution we're going to work around it the problem is never make that mistake you just made of saying they all come together the mistake lies on our part we haven't understood the nuance because the way kuldeep asked that question of why we never pass on that institutional knowledge we have never played the divide and rule game 
Okay. We have never actually, every time the Wahhabis do good behavior, we never incentivize them. On the other hand, we just collectively condemn all of them. There are ways of controlling this. Okay. There are ways of doing this, especially now that you have a Saudi government that is very, very, um, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, pro-India in that sense. The most pro-Saudi government we've ever had. The most pro-India allies we've ever had. They, they didn't even open their mouths. The UAE went to the extent of saying Modi is right. CA protesters are wrong. Go away. Right. Uh, things like that. Uh, you play the game. Don't blame them for uniting when you are all, when you are intent on clubbing them together. Okay. You need to play off one leadership against other leadership. What is preventing you from doing it? If you don't do it and if you club them all together, then they're going to be, it's the same that Rahul Gandhi does. Don't become another Rahul Gandhi. Don't unite them. Have that nuance to understand how they are different, how their needs are different, how their ideologies are different and how you, and you know, you have to, at that point, you have to let them. So for example, the Shias are well managed, not by us. The Shias give the cursory support, the verbal support, but do absolutely nothing on the ground for the Sunnis purely because of their own interests and what is happening between Iran and Saudi Arabia, at least for the Jafris, for the uh, Boras and uh, for the uh, uh, Ismailis, it's a completely different ball game, right? Understand the nuance. Nuance is your greatest friend. Stop clubbing them together the way you just did. N nothing good is going to come from it. Are there going to be a few Wahhabi extremists here and there? Hell yeah. I mean, extremism is a Wahhabi thing, but also understand they are fundamentally more controllable at any given point of time if you invest the effort in it. Combined with the rule of law. Never forget, this only happens when you have rule of law. So in that sense, you know, keep, stop saying Islam. Stop saying Muslim. Okay? Keep separating it. It's always Tablighis, Wahhabis. And what do you want to say? If you want to say one day, Shia Hindu, say and never say Wahhabi. They hate the term Wahhabi. You have to say Salafi. And you say that these people would today, it's these people are the true Salafis and uh, 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 Tablighi Jamaat are fake Salafis. They are Shirk. They are Bidda. Uh, tomorrow you say Tablighi Jamaat are our uh, 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 Tablighi Jamaat Hindu Bhai Bhai. You are true Salafis. Wahhabi log hai. They are not true Salafis. They are Shirk and Bidda. Play the game. Stop. I mean, everybody sees that Rahul Gandhi is leading to Hindu uh, consolidation. Why are you basically enabling Muslim consolidation? Stop doing that. Remember, what we're seeing is Muslim consolidation aided by the BJP under the aegis of Ovesi. I am convinced 100% that Ovesi is being propped up by the BJP and they're doing it so that this, you know, uh, nuanced Muslim vote bank essentially becomes one that can then be uh, dealt with as one. It suits the BJP. It doesn't suit India. Remember, stop passing off the BJP as a representative of Hindus or India. It is in the BJP's electoral interest. It is never in Hinduism's electoral interest. It is never in India's electoral interest. Sorry. Haganish, your question. Uh, Abhijitji, uh, Namaste. Uh, I want to ask that what is the role of left-wing media in propagating the Wahhabis or Sunnis hatred for the Hindus? Their role comes in denial. Okay, they will always try to cover up. They will always try to normalize. They will always try to explain away uh, and justify it. And that is what you need to counteract. The way they do it is when we lack nuance. 
then your objection to their cover up becomes bigotry it it isn't it's a lack of nuance it can be bigotry at times as well but your lack of nuance will always be passed off as bigotry this is what they do that they create a political a political correctness uh, certification agency and they do cover up you have to overcome two layers the political correctness uh, uh, certification and the uh, uh, cover up you can't do that by lacking nuance you have to have nuance in both cases